I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> Penn State was in the Atlantic. <laughs> Tired. Mark Whipple was a bad coach at UMass. Wired. Harley Molnar was a bad coach at UMass. Inspired. <laughs> Kevin Morris was a bad coach at UMass. <laughs> okay, this is Curry Hicksage. I'm coming to you on Friday, June 25th. I recorded this episode with Bennett the other night, maybe a week ago. I don't know, probably like June 17th, something like that. The recording got lost. I then found another version of the recording. He's going to upload it. But it was fairly short. We did it like live on a Twitter platform. Um, kind of kind of strange how he structured it. It was fun. We were, we were like hoping people would get involved. Whatever. We'll try it again later. He lost the recording. No big deal. We love Bennett. Folks, do we love Bennett? We love Bennett. Then when I was sending it to him, I was like, I can't ask five college movers, the fine folks at five college movers to send their uh, 3.2 million per episode fee if I just give 50 minutes. So I went back and I found a recording of a mailbag I did on April 28th. Now, we haven't actually done a show since April 2nd. Longest hiatus in UMass podcast, UMass basketball podcast history, I believe. We'll try to fix that moving forward. It's been a strange time. I, I talk about it a little in the episode. I moved. Uh, there was a long off season in terms of personnel stuff. Just finally played out last week or two weeks ago when Trey decided he was going to Texas. So now we're kind of back in the back in the flow here. I'm hoping to do more of these in July and August. I'm also working weirder hours. So uh, it's been tough. But no excuses. This is your podcast. It's going to be a strange one because the questions from the April 28th are from April 28th. So all the stuff about Trey and, you know, transfers and other people coming in hadn't really played out at that point. So just take that into into account and enjoy the show. This girl from my past had ridiculous ass. She attended UMass and she passed every class. Walked down the hall with a stuck up sass. Both the basketball players, she liked how they passed. But when I used to hit it, the ball... Hello and good evening. This is Curry Hit Sage coming to you live from New York City. On June 16th, Wednesday evening... This is the first episode we've done of this, the UMass Basketball Podcast, in, I believe, almost 10 weeks. April 2nd, I believe, was our last episode. And that might, probably, definitely, is the longest time we've gone without doing an episode. I, I always try to get at least one in a month, other than maybe a one one or two month stretch in the, maybe our first year. We've, we've managed to stick to that. But after that uh, last episode, which was the Mark Bertrand episode, there was just uh, a lot of personal stuff going on. I moved. It is just relentless dealing with that and work and et cetera, et cetera. So we're back. We're trying a new format tonight. We will post this for those not listening in real time. And some of you have known that I've been taking to Twitter spaces periodically, which is a new platform on Twitter where you can kind of talk in real time. And we've done some fun stuff, but they haven't been formal shows per se. The hallmark of a formal show is, of course, the sponsorship, This, in this case being by none other than the world-class stress-free moving service, Five College Movers. Tonight's show 
as all shows, are brought to you by, is brought to you by rather, the fine folks at Five College Movers, world-class moving in the Pioneer Valley and beyond, stress-free. Call Pat and the gang. Tell them we sent you. All right, so tonight I don't have a super tight agenda. Um, Bennett and I had sort of, you know, bantered back and forth, and I wasn't even sure we were going to do it until right before the legalization of uh, modest edibles, a compelling uh, sideshow for this evening. Uh, maybe we'll cut that out, Bennett, for the real show. Uh, but, uh, no, in all seriousness, um, this is the first time we've we've gotten together in a while. There's a lot to catch up on. Bennett, first of all, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, you know, happy to be coming out of a little bit, uh, the, the COVID bubble we've kind of been in for a while, um, and kind of, you know, enjoying, enjoying kind of where I'm at. Uh, how about yourself? Yeah, can't complain. I mean, I'm not totally out of that bubble yet. I feel like I still spend too much time indoors and on my phone, and because I'm working weirder hours, I'm, like, not getting out as much. Uh, also, the two kids thing. But I really can't complain. I mean, you know, the new place is great. I finally have a like large television so i feel like an adult um haven't had that in many years just uh so yeah i mean i'm i'm actually going to be in western mass this weekend uh looks like i might get a round in with a friend of the program i i I haven't told him i was announcing that on the show so we'll we'll see if if i you know we'll post something on twitter if But, uh, so, so I'm playing with a friend of the program and a friend of UMass Athletics, uh, and that'll be fun. We're going to play some golf on Saturday morning. Uh, if I shoot, uh, under 65 on nine holes, I would be quite pleased. Um, that's where my golf game stands. Haven't really, have not played around this year other than pitch and putt. And, uh, going to do Blue Heron. For dinner, which I'm told, which I've been to once, it's an anniversary dinner, so I got to go big. It's a very nice spot there in Deerfield, probably a little overpriced for the area, but uh, you know we don't get many dates these days, so um, that'll be fun. Joe's Pizza Friday night will be waiting for me when I arrive at my parents' place, and then uh, I may have to just head over to the hangar on Saturday. Tried to hit up some folks affiliated with the program to see if I could get into the practice facility, and it sounds like there's uh, staff is busy this weekend recruiting, so sounds like a legitimate reason. Maybe I'll hit up Walt Bell. Have not. What if I just hit him up? Yeah. You know what? Fuck it. <laughs> hey, Walt, just a quick question. Hang on. I, I know you're you know you're doing something, but I should, just a quick one. I, should I text him? I have his number. Yeah. Listen. This is this is live. This is, live radio. this is good radio. Let's see what happens. Anything is possible. Oh, fuck. I don't have his number. Wait, no. You know where it is? It's probably... Um, it's... Yeah. Can you hear me? Bennett? Bennett, can you hear me? We have lost Bennett Carroll. Gone is Bennett Carroll. Well, let's hope I'm still recording. Because, uh, well, let's see who's in the chat. If I'm, if I am still recording, wait, hold on. I don't really know what happened at this point, but, uh, Bennett. 
Bennett. All right, well, I sincerely hope Bennett is there. Um, maybe he's coming back now. Bennett? All right, well, what I'm going to do is find Walt's number in my DMs from way back. But anyway, um, if that is proving inadequate, here were the topics I was going to discuss tonight. So the first thing, it's amazing we haven't done a show since, but because there's actually been a lot of UMass news. And... First and foremost, national champs, hockey national champs. There's actually so many episodes we need to be doing about this, and I do want to get Carvel on the show at some point. But there's nothing I can add, you know, as a kind of now hockey's becoming maybe my second, no, probably still third favorite program at UMass because I do want football to do well. Um, but you know, it's just such a tremendous thing for the school and. It's one of those things when you're in it, it probably feels bigger than it really is. You know, if we're being honest, even the final, which got much higher ratings than other Frozen Four finals, had about 433,000 viewers, I think I recall hearing. So this is regional stuff. It's fairly niche, but it means my my sense is, I mean, it's not my sense. It's obvious there's so many signs pointing to this, but... It means a great deal on campus, and I and I think that was reflected in Carvel's um, speech at commencement and his sort of succinct way of capturing um, the kind of vibe at UMass right now. He said something like "ordinary people doing extraordinary things" or something to that effect, which I thought was well stated. But I think you know it, it just infuses a. Uh, an energy on on the campus and you just see so many people like wearing merch and just flying flags and that's the stuff we've always talked about on this show i mean to overcome a, a culture of indifference or apathy from a fan perspective you have to do all those things but it's a chicken and egg thing in order to do those things you have to be given a reason a justification I mean, you don't have to the people who listen to this show would probably do it anyway but just the number of like casuals I saw engaging with the UMass hockey title, you know, when it happened and, and for weeks later was really exciting. I mean, we were fighting with Jane Swift, former Massachusetts governor, about parade logistics. One of the oddest episodes in UMass Twitter history. I'm not sure you caught that, Ben. It was so weird. And you can go back to the transcript for details, uh, but man, like, the fact that we were even in that UMass Twitter was dunking on a former governor about parade logistics, you know, that was cool. There ended up not being a parade, which I thought sucked. I know it was during COVID. I still thought you could have done something safely outdoors. Obviously the mood has shifted and changed considerably in the two plus months since. Um, so it's just awesome for the school. And I, and I think it will infuse a buzz in other programs as well. And, and, and sort of serve as not a blueprint for other sports. That's too simple. But um, the blueprint here, if we're being honest, is Carvel, right? I mean, finding a lifer. And it's different in other sports, very different. 
it was always easiest to turn hockey around. I don't care what anyone says. It's 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 there's you know 65 teams in the country or whatever it is, and and you're in the best league in the country, and you have a great arena. So there there was something, and Carvel understood that to his eternal credit. And now he'll probably be there forever. And and it's just so exciting to have to know that you know there'll, there'll be some down years, but basically you can kind of count, I think, at this point on them being a staple in Hockey East or relevant as long as he's here. I mean, his pipeline with NHL talent. I mean, granted, his top assistant did leave for Maine, so like you never know. Sometimes that's a thing, and it's clear he drives those guys hard. I don't think they're all... I've heard that he's... You know, he's they, they respect him deeply. It's not like... They don't all love him. He, he, obviously, you saw some transfers this year, um, you know, including some stars who, you know, I mean, they're, they're just so good now. They're like throwing guys out the door. You know, if you're a fifth year, they're like, well, we're bringing in our next guys. You won a national title. See you later, Oliver Chow or whoever it is. So anyway, give, give him an immense amount of credit. Um, he did something historic, and I hope it rubs off. That's UMass Hockey. This is, of course, a UMass basketball podcast, and while there's going to be a lot of other things we talk about tonight, there has been some basketball news as well. Uh, I don't want to call it a roster overhaul, Bennett, but um, at the end of the season, and we ha- we've had episodes since then, um, Trey Mitchell announced his transfer. We'll talk about that in a moment. It culminated yesterday, three-plus months later, in what felt like you know, an absolute eternity. Uh, Ronnie DeGray left for Mizzou, and Carl Pierre will do his fifth year at Rice, and Mark Gasparini is done, and then believe there was one other transfer, but that might actually be it. So they bring in four or five guys uh for next year, a transfer by the name of Trent Buttrick, who's about a six-eight kid, good shooter from Penn State, who never did a lot there, but will fit fairly well in Matt's offense. Michael Stedman, a big man out of Montana, by or by way of San Jose State, as well as a JUCO. This will be his fourth college, but he can score. He's six-nine. He's, you know, given that you need a guy who can play right away, and you know, has average. He averaged like 13 points in the at the Division One level, so he's no slouch. Uh, you know, albeit on a really bad San Jose State team, I think. But you know, he averaged like 10 at Montana, and they're in the tournament every once in a while. It's not you know in the big sky. It's like decent basketball. Um, you know, when he can rebound, he can shoot a little. So he'll probably start because they have no other bigs. And then um, C.J. Kelly out of Albany, who was a really good scorer. Um, and when UMass alum Dwayne Killings came to take over, obviously they parted ways, as is often the case under new coaches. Um, he will be a he'll have two years of eligibility. And then uh, Rich Kelly, out of BC, who actually was a double figure scorer in the guard spot last year, similar player in many ways to Noah Fernandez. So it'll be interesting to see how they work alongside one another. But he's a legit player. I mean, he's he averaged like 17 at Quinnipiac and. 11 change at BC. Um, BC had a coaching change. He's, you know, I think he's from the Northeast. So that'll be a really reliable scoring option um, here in um, in his fifth season. I expect him to to score a lot. And then the 
final transfer was a kid from Southern Connecticut, D2, who put up very good numbers there, but had previously played at James Madison, originally from the Bronx. His name is Greg, and man, I had done so good retaining all that information without looking at anything, which I think is really fucking impressive, I gotta say. Um, man, I wish I could do that with like the periodic table. I don't think I could name more than two elements. Um, but the kid's name is Greg something, and he's kind of a grinder, six seven, two fifty, like athletic, tough. And it's it's funny because I'm actually more excited about him than I have been about a lot of D1 big men transfers over the years. Because I just think if you're transferring up, you had a chance at the Division One level, were kind of like middling three, four points a game, then did really well in your second shot at D2, or a high school valedictorian, you play really hard D. Like, that's the kind of guy UMass has always lacks. And, you know, there was no toughness on this team last year. And just having that one guy... Um, you know, Keon Clergo, for to, for all his flaws, was that guy a couple years ago. You know, you just one or two guys like that with some edge. You know, maybe give Colton Mitchell some more minutes. I don't know, but that's that 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 you know kind of rounds out the roster. Brian Grossman, a longtime director of basketball operations and an overall really good dude, got the third assistant slot. Of course, Tony Bergeron having departed, not in tandem with Trey Mitchell as many people had expected. And Ricky Harris, former UMass great, coming on board in kind of a coach's assistant slash player personnel guy. And I think he will be a tremendous addition to, st- to the staff. There's, I don't have enough good things I can say about Ricky. He just finished a really good 11-year career overseas. And he will you know, probably wear a lot of hats and be a guy, I think, who can have the player's ear a little bit and relate to players, but also be, you know, like, there's no better walking role model for how to conduct yourself as, like, an athlete in, you know, in the relatively recent past. It's wild to me that Ricky Harris has finished his pro career. Like, that makes me, because I was out of college but when he hit that those shots against Kansas to win on the road. I'll never forget it. And that was only his junior year. He had another year after that. So um, that makes me feel weird. But, you know, Ricky was the kind of dude who, like, I feel like is a rare combo of someone who is well-liked by adults and kids, if that makes sense. And I just mean it from, like, a sensibility standpoint. You know, players really respected him and had a lot of fun with him, and he was fun. And you've heard Freddie Riley tell some stories about his, you know, he, he obviously, like, he was no he was no dweeb, right? Like, Ricky enjoyed himself at UMass, but he's also the consummate, like, professional, and so I think, like, someone who can, and it was like, look, I was here four years, like, I partied, like, I did this, but Ricky, you know, you hear, I remember Freddie telling those stories about, like, Ricky being out with them at night, and then, like, being all over them at practice for not, um, for, I did, did we include that part? I, I hope it's, I hope I didn't edit that out, but where Freddie's talking about how, like, he and Javon, like, went to a Smith College party, too hard the night before and Freddie and then like Ricky at practice was like what the fuck like he showed that player leadership but also you know was not like a school mom um so that that was great news and I was I was really pleased to see that that he'll be back in the fold um the other news 
that I was thinking of here. I just wrote it down. Hockey title, basketball transfers. Oh, yeah. Big news recently. The This is just yesterday, actually. Um, it was determined that uh, there will be like a Mount Rushmore-style statue for UMass basketball featuring Julius Irving, Jack Lehman, Marcus Camby, and John Calipari, and that its unveiling date will coincide with the BC home game in football on September 11th. The night prior to that, some other recent news, the entire 95-96 team will be in, Batman's basketball team, will be inducted into the UMass Athletics Hall of Fame. So you have the unveiling of the statue, the induction, and the BC game. Three first-rate events to kick off the school year after essentially two years of no one, I mean, it's, it, it's been, well, it'll have been like 18 months since there was an athletic event on the camp, you know, with fans on the campus of the University of Massachusetts. So that is shaping up to be, by all accounts, a historic weekend. That's uh, not hyperbole in saying so for rabid UMass athletics fans, really of any sport. Um, and we have been talking preliminarily I've sort of thrown it out a little on Twitter. I've talked with Pat from Five College Movers of doing the long-discussed UMass Basketball live show podcast at the UMass BC tailgate, you know, sometime just before or after the unveiling of the statue and the night after the uh, induction ceremony and just prior to the BC UMass game. So, if we, you know, we'll see if we follow through. I, I was thinking, friend of the show, Eric Friedlander, if you're hearing this, I think you have some sort of background in, like, planning large events. I have a bunch of cockamamie ideas in my head. It's not so elaborate that it would take a ton of time, I don't think. So I don't want to put you on the spot. But I have a bunch of ideas, and I need someone to help me execute. If anybody is interested, let me know. Some of the ideas, and in, 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 in I'm already a little anxious for it because it's like, oh, I'd really have to put myself out there. Would I wear a mask featuring Curry Hicks Sage on it? I mean, Curry Hicks, Curry Hicks of Curry Hicks Cage fame. Uh, would I go just for real? Um, and then, but the idea is like, I'm, I'm just saying this out loud, so please kick me yours in DM on Twitter or whatever. Uh, I'm thinking, well, first of all, Bennett, you better come, uh, you probably can't because it's like fan, prime fantasy football season. But the backdrop would be like in the tailgating site, a state, a small stage that goes up to like the tires of a five college movers, uh, five college moving truck. So that's kind of your backdrop. And, um, and, uh, and then, you know, like we'd have guests. It could be a three hour deal where Cal Perry comes for 20 minutes, Canby comes for 10 minutes. I would love Dr. J. That would be, like, amazing. But, you know, even McCall stops by, Walt Bell before the game, perhaps. Who knows? Just a series of luminaries and, you know, friends of the show and just kind of, like, free-flowing, you know, people drinking outside. I was thinking we'd make it, uh, and this is going to sound a little delusional, but I think, just hear me out, some sort of a ticketed-style event where a ticket would be, like, $10. You get a custom plastic cup with like a UMass Twitter reference, maybe even your name on it, possibly make it like a $25 entry where you get a t-shirt too. I don't know. It's not about making money, but what I, why I do, why I mention all that is that 
I think that that would serve as like kind of a a, a totem of uh, like I'm here for this event, and it's like you know a weirdly maroon thing that's like you know UMass basketball live show with like the date. Um, which is awkward because it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11, so that's like a strange thing to commemorate. But nonetheless, it does mem- merit commemoration, or would if it happens. And then we'd have like, you know, mics and, and speakers and, and, you know, that whole thing would be cool. And But yeah, you, maybe you'd get a cup with like, you'd get like a lar- like a tall boy for of beer, like, you know, like a, a 32 ounce or something, ice cold with a, with a cup. And then, you know, that would also get you like a seat. We'd set up chairs because I think the weird thing with this that I would want to avoid, like you don't want to have a situation where you're getting like security or anything like that. But you want you don't want just like random people who don't know what, what we're like doing, just walking by and like walking onto your set. So some way of like cordoning it off where it's it, it, and there's like some marker of like, OK, I'm partaking in an event here, not just there's two guys up there with a mic bantering and people are like sitting, you know, vaguely nearby passively for three hours. That's awkward. Um, so, you know, I'd like to like, maybe even have like a, a sort of a, not a DJ, but like a, yeah, like a DJ actually who kind of throws on a tune between interviews and kind of like keeps the, the show flowing. Like our next guest, you know, something like that. Cause I think just three people talking live, it's flat it's really flat, like make it more of like a, an event. And so, you know, whether that's like some food or like a buffet, if you, if you like almost like a wristband style event, you don't want to be exclusive about it. This show is not, I mean, my whole life and belief system is about being inclusive and egalitarian and bringing fans together around this in whatever little way I can. But I also don't want some, freshman at UMass who's never given one thought to, you know, UMass football and what it means to people or UMass basketball and what it means to serious fans, like running through my event and like trying to grab two beers and being a shithead. Like, and that's not me being like, oh, you know, get off my lawn. It's just being mindful of what we'd be trying to do with a live show, which would be present the smattering of fans that this program has with a a fun live option and a place for like UMass Twitter people and just, you know, rabid followers of these programs to get together and meet people and mix it up. And, you you know, not that that's going to get ruined by a kid who wants to spend time in the student tailgate, but you just never know. Like you want to have some way of like sort of codifying the event. So I don't know if that's a wristband with a, with like a, you know, with like, you know, a bunch of hanger stuff, catering, there's a lot of ways we could do it, but I, I think there's ways to make it exciting where we entice people. We get like a bunch of Antonio's or, you know, and it's like, Oh, that's a fucking event, you know? And it's almost funny to think like you have, you have like some vague screen at the door and it's like, you have to like bust out your, your UMass Twitter handle. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know, Bennett, you have any ideas here? Bennett's clearly like doing something else right now. Um, all right. Well, so that's kind of where UMass basketball is. That's where the, that, there's a lot of events coming up. That stuff also generated some predictable columns. Uh, well, one in particular, Dan Shaughnessy taking shots, 
UMass Twitter went nuts. Nothing gets us fi- more fired up than taking shots at Dan Shaughnessy. Some people think we're overreacting. We are. Who cares? It's fun. That's kind of my broad-based thoughts on this. And fuck him. It is a little weird that it's on 9-11. That's a little tricky because it is the 20th anniversary. But, you know, college football games are happening all around the country. You get Calipari to campus when you can. you got to assume he's going to be there for those two days. That's great. Curious to see what people are thinking for all these things. How we're going to, you know, if you have ideas for the event, that would be awesome. And then two new, two other pieces of news. Uh, one is Trey Mitchell finally, after three months, making the decision yesterday to attend the University of Texas. And I'm not blowing smoke at Trey Mitchell, but I got to say, if there's Any athletic institution in the country that combines athletics, academics, resources, alumni network, amazing town, beautiful women, it's almost shocking that the University of Texas doesn't win a national title in three sports, you know, basketball, baseball, football every year. If you've been to Austin, I think it's the fastest growing place in the country. It's an unbelievably cool town. Uh, You know, it's, it's... Imagine almost like almost a massive Amherst, but I think better weather because I like, um, you know, uh, I like hot weather. But, you know, incredible weather, uh, you know, beautiful women in industry, you know, great, unbelievable music scene. You have the state government there. You have a tech scene that's not as annoying as it is in um San Francisco, it's, there's so, I mean, it's just, it's like, you got to go to Austin if you haven't. I I went to a bachelor party a couple years back, loved it. It's like funky, but you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's growing so fast that it's losing a little bit of its niche charm that it had 15 years ago when it was like not as well known. You got Matthew McConaughey, they make a ton of movies there. I mean, it's like, Awesome, and it's a great school with an insane alumni network. Trey is like really now entering the big time, and it's a little bit sad. Um, it took forever, but I think ultimately he did make the right choice. It was reportedly down to there in Florida State. Rumors of he and Tony Bergeron being a uh, package ultimately never materialized. Um, you know, I heard rumors of all sorts, and we don't need to get into that. Tony, I, I don't know where he's going next. But the Trey Mitchell saga is over. I'm yawning as I say it because, boy, it was a tiring process. Um, It felt like it lasted forever. And, you know, there goes the best player who's been at UMass in 25 years. And I know some people say Gary Forbes or whatever. You know, look, there's been some good ones that come through here, but... Trey was a special talent, and it's hard to see him go. I think good, you know. I don't. I, I, it's it's time to move on. That's life. Um, it was fun while it lasted. Wish it could have worked out. You know, a lot of things uh, are what they are. So that's a piece of news. Um, we'll get to the roster in a moment. Jumping sports again here, and apologies for all these segues, but there's just a lot to talk about. I didn't even realize Krista or Kristen Stefanoni, the women's softball coach, had been let go or that her contract had not been renewed. I think they, you know, they didn't say fired, but it was essentially fired. 
and I didn't realize she'd been let go. And you know, by all accounts, heard very good things about her as a person. Her in her her record was fine. It, it's it's a testament to the quality of that program that I think over seven or eight years she was ten games over five hundred at UMass in most sports that keeps you around. The reality is, you know, as a former player, she inherited the program from probably the, I don't even think probably, I think the greatest coach in the history of UMass athletics in Elaine Sortino. And that's just an impossible act to follow. You think about John Shire down at Duke, you know, who's about to take over for Coach K. It's just, you know, it's it sounds cliche, but um, following in the footsteps of a legend is just a difficult, difficult thing to do. So news came down today that current UMass Lowell coach and former UMass softball star and Olympian and greatest player in UMass softball history maybe and I'm gonna say this and I've said it before, in my I don't want to say the greatest athlete in UMass history because that's Dr. J. Well, in but in my opinion, and you can't compare her sports, but she She's certainly the most dominant athlete I've ever witnessed at UMass. So softball pitcher Danielle Henderson coming home. You have to imagine this was always in the cards, and I don't remember where she was after Elaine died, but for whatever reason she was not perceived by McCutcheon, I guess, as the logical successor, which seems really strange because I believe Stefanoni is several years younger than Sortino, uh, excuse me, than Henderson. Uh, and so it's odd that she would have been tapped for that post. Maybe she was an assistant to Elaine. I don't know, and it was a continuity thing. I don't know. Either way, Henderson, who spent the last four or five years at UMass Lowell with a quality but underwhelming on paper record, in part, I understand, because Lowell is so has so recently moved Division One in the sport. Uh, but she, she had some great years there, won a league title. She's coming back. You know, it's almost like Patrick Ewing for Georgetown basketball. I mean, I haven't probably been to a UMass softball game since Danielle Henderson was there. And she was there in the glory years of Camby and everybody else that, you know, made me fall in love with UMass athletics. But Danielle Henderson, who I believe graduated in 99, maybe 2000. So 96, basically that final four year would have been her freshman year and then for me it would have been like fourth grade fifth grade sixth grade seventh grade and they used to play at i think it was called topman field it was a little just a dinky little you know um softball field with some bleachers and not much else on i guess the south side of campus it's kind of middle nowhere and what she did on that diamond, you know, without it, there, there's probably no softball facility like there is now. And give Elaine all the credit in the world, best coach UMass has ever had. But she never got back to the same heights without Danielle uh, Henderson. They brought in that other great pitcher in like the mid-aughts. His name is eluding me now. There was a ball schmitter, and, but there was somebody else who was really good and may have even broken some Henderson records because maybe they played more games or whatever. I don't know. But no one was like Danielle Henderson. She took them, I think, to at least one College World Series and maybe like two Super Regionals, maybe a second. Just like 
to go to the College World Series, I mean, I don't know if you watch women's softball, but, like, that shit's an event. And it's an event in one or two parts of the country, and neither of which is the Northeast. So to go from the Northeast to the College World Series, I think it's one of the most impressive accomplishments in UMass athletics history when you just think of that. I mean, you look at that event every year, and it's, I mean, I don't know anything about softball, but you look at that event, it's like, LSU. I bet you there's no Northeast program in the College World Series in, since then. Maybe, maybe one. Maybe somebody did it as a fluke. This woman would throw like six no hitters a year. Sometimes back to back. Like she was doing things, and I didn't know anything about softball. I mean, the and you would go and like football players would be doing push ups after every strikeout, hanging K's in the outfield. Like it was an event. Now, granted, hold on, I'm just going to take a sip of water. Granted, it was a little bit of an event. Like, look, as I was saying about hockey, you know, the winning rubs off, right? And so when men's basketball was that good, women's basketball got good and made a couple tournaments for the first time ever and never have they made it back since. Um, Men's football two years later, right, uh, won the national title. So, and you know, it's, it, you know, that's where we talk about what Calipari did, why it was so important, because that residue lasted several more years in, in various sports and just in like the buzz on campus. Um, for, you know, and, and I think even as late as, and this is a very tenuous connection, but hear me out, even as late as 2006 when the men's football team um, made another national title, like, the brand value of UMass, right? Because you got to think if it's 2006, those guys are getting recruited in 2002, meaning they're 11, 12 in 96 when UMass is a brand name nationally. So it, it's not just that year or because as I always talk about it, it builds, right? Like you had five straight Atlantic 10 tournament titles, a Sweet 16 appearance in 92. Um, I think, didn't they, how far did they make it? 93, I forget. But, you know, they they won again in 93. Then 94, they got a two seed. Then 95, they made the Elite Eight with another two seed. Then 96, they made, they, they you know, the Final Four run. But there's a long build there. And even, I think, they, then they made the NIT prior. So you got like six years, two more tournaments with Bruiser, so that's seven, eight, then nine, then last year was third year bruiser, they made the NIT. So, you know, you had a period of time where anybody who entered UMass was, it, there was this buzz. And going back to the Daniel Henderson thing, it rubbed off with her because when basketball season would kind of wind down and they made such deep runs that that was late March, early April at times, you'd still have that kind of buzz on campus and people would just be looking where to, for where to put it. You know, men's lacrosse always been solid, used to get great crowds. Um, but women's softball and really Danielle Henderson, she was such a phenomenon. I mean, you'd look in the local paper and they, they'd literally be like, Ben, I'm not kidding. They'd be like, Danielle Henderson had 19 strikeouts in game one of a doubleheader and 20 in game two. Like just crazy shit that that time the newspaper was still a big deal and that's when I started feeling old but me and my dad were just like oh, let's check this out you know and I don't know how many times I went but I, I can remember it 
just how fast she threw the fucking ball, man. She was like 6'2". That mound is like 10 feet away. And it was just humming. And the crowd just was like electric. Like, it, And I probably, I, can't, I mean, I didn't go that many times. Two, three, four, who knows. But just catching a glimpse of it was like unbelievable. So you also had Hagus Hoopla on campus. This amazing three-on-three tournament on the Hagus Mall that brought out just it was like basically a spring party weekend it was the last weekend in april and you combine the spring party weekend with like this cool event with being it being on campus with the basketball team making appearances at it you know mike reese patriots and espn reporter you know covering um like basically the mc of the event as i've mentioned before i was uh back to back titles in the announcing competition at center court of Hagas Hoopla. One year I won a pair of New Balance basketball sneakers, a short-lived brand, and uh, the next year or another year I, I won Eric Montross autographed picture. Um, he looked like someone who would be yelling about Antifa on television, for those of you who don't remember him. So lots of segues there and things to chat about. We are less than five months away from men's basketball season, so we're kind of almost halfway through the off season here. And you know, we've talked about it on some of these uh, these um, spate Twitter spaces. But you know, this is it for McCall. I, I there's just no doubt in my mind it's make or break. Um, whether or not you think he should have returned, or you were pleased with what happened to the roster, you know. It's water under the bridge. He's back. And I have been vacillating quite a bit with this group and what will happen lately where I actually think there is a strange chance that this team shocks everyone and wins more than 20 games. It will sound ridiculous. It may, in fact, be ridiculous. But the schedule uh, pairings just came out very favorable for UMass. They get essentially all of the not great teams at home, as well as a couple of them on the road. And all of the sort of automatic loss games are on the road. They're at Richmond. They're at St. Bonaventure, neither of whom they play twice. So the top teams in the league, they're on the, at Dayton. So I believe so they're so they're at those teams and they don't play them a second time. So there's this strange universe in which they could win 11 or 12 games in the league now, uh, and and the league's a little bit down. And there's so many teams with immense changes or coaching uncertainty. And I also just think, look, Matt McCall this year you saw with the appointment uh, the the promotion of Brian Grossman his close friend and kind of body man for several years and bringing in Ricky that I think this will be the first season in Emerson perhaps the only one you know depending on how it goes where Matt is actually comfortable where he is I mean he won't be comfortable in the sense that he'll be like not nervous about his future but I think there's got to be a certain piece there, right? And I've talked to folks around the program, and it sounds this way. I think Matt had a very hard time managing Tony Bergeron. Um, he's gone. The the the, the kind of the, the saga or, or subtext regard surrounding Trey is no longer in the background. 
is I think the feeling of like I have to get I have a guy this good I have to get him 20 touches a game and force it inside and run an offense that frankly is not who Matt I think feels he wants to be that doesn't you know it's not you don't want to lose Trey but I think from a psychological comfort and ease standpoint that will make it easier for Matt to do what he wants to do um, there was a perception among many that that Bergeron was kind of in his ear and, and questioning his every move and, and Bergeron's close ties to Mitchell um, complicated things for Matt. I think some of that was overplayed, probably some truth in it. Um, but I do think, look, like now it's just do or die. He's got his guys. Um, you know, some of the Bergeron guys have kind of left, although there's several still here. Um, he's brought in a bunch of transfers and you know, there's a lot of balanced scoring on this team. I got to say, I, I liken them to a traditional like George Mason team where you have seemingly, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven guys. Not Mason doesn't have that many with this group that could average between nine and 14 points. None who could average over 14 points, especially given the way McCall plays. But there's a universe in which you just rock out and beat teams, you know, 89 to 84 every night, and you you, you, you shoot a ton of threes. Kelly can shoot the three. Fernand, uh, TJ Weeks can shoot the three. Fernandez can shoot the three. I mean, you got a lot of, you know, the kid Buttrick from Penn State can step out and shoot the three. So, um, you know, Debaji once in a while. I mean, so... So there's the Dominguez. There's a lot of guys on this team that can get minutes, and Kelly uh, from from Albany. So there's this universe in which, against a bad league where there's not as many as much star power, you could, um, you know, you could uh, win a bunch of games, and, and we'll have to see where the non-conference slate goes. But it doesn't appear it's going to be impossible. I think there's a game against like Yale, who's lost a lot of their big wigs and didn't play last year. There's a game against Rutgers, who's very good, and but they lost some guys from that NCAA tournament team. And it's at UMass two days after Thanksgiving. Weirder things have happened, um, and you know some cushy te- other teams. So there's a weird universe in which things could go quite well. Um, I worry that they go quite well, but not well enough. And there's this weird like. Well, McCall won 20 games and made an NIT. Should we bring him back? And it's like, well, you can't really cut him, but it's like, you know, it's been five years. There's like, I have those fears a little bit, but I always want the team to win. And if maybe they, maybe they win 20 and then they win two in the A10 tournament and really make, you know, who knows? I mean, whatever. There's the other side of me that sees this as a night recipe. Of a of a chemistry nightmare in the waiting, um, of a team with no coherent identity, without its best player from last year, and with just a bunch of guys who have no connections to one another. You know, several fifth year transfers. You know, four fifth year transfers. Um, a guy from Albany who, you know, we'll see character-wise how he is. You always wonder when a new staff takes over and they don't keep a star um, why that would be. It didn't appear, because it didn't appear to just be like he was transferring up. I don't remember where else he was looking, but it didn't seem like he was terribly coveted. But he can play. 
the kid Stedman from Montana can play. He's on his fifth year, uh, fifth, uh, fourth school. So, and then you have some Bergeron guys in Cairo, Debaji, Preston returning, um, and DeAndre Dominguez, who, you know, one, and JG, if he comes back, it's weird how little we're hearing about him lately, but he's apparently on campus. It's like five dudes who, to varying degrees, are probably loyal to, to Bergeron a bit. Colton Mitchell as well, if he's even still in the roster, I, I don't know. I heard he was maybe eligible to graduate. I don't know. Um, you know, I think TJ Weeks and Noah, to a lesser extent, uh, are loyal to, to Tony in the sense that TJ, you know, he was recruited here before Tony was even here, as was Noah. Matt liked both those kids, like, long before. He did with DeGray, too. I don't associate DeGray as much as, like, a Tony dude. The others are, um, and I don't think they came here to play for Matt so much as they came here to play for Tony. So you have like four or five lingering Tony loyalists, not to say that they won't play hard for Matt, you know, I'm just noting, four or five lingering loyalists, four or five transfers, Carl Pierre is gone, so you don't have that like Mr. UMass presence. Uh, maybe TJ Weeks plays that role. I think Noah Fernandez will to some extent, but... You know, that's not that maybe Preston, who he Preston, I guess, was recruited maybe before Tony arrived too. But so you got, you know, got a few guys who are loyal, but it's just like there's some serious mercenary energy here, right? I mean, you got a BC kid in his third school, SUNY Albany kid, and I think he's in his third school. Um, the, the Southern Connecticut kid is in his third school. The Penn State kid, you know, he, he'll probably be solid, but he's a fifth year. He's not, like, looking to lay down roots here. Um, and Stedman from Montana, he's a West Coast kid. Like, you know, it's funny because McCall has the whole shtick about, you know, all, all the things he's he's talked about is, you know, like, people who want to be here, people who understand the area, people who are connected, blah, blah. It's like you're literally running a mercenary roster, you know. And um, now there are and – so, and so there's this piece of me that's like, this could be such a shit show if he if it gets if it starts badly and the kids basically know he's going to get canned, they don't give a fuck. They're looking to just get their shots and get a deal in Lithuania next year, and it's just a disaster, you know. And we're talking six, seven, eight, nine wins and just a total shit show, like year two all over again. Um, and I just don't know which one it's going to be. Now, maybe the non-conference schedule is so bad that you kind of easily find your way to seven wins, and then conference play is like you win five or something, and it's a disaster, but you're five and 13, and you beat. Because GW is in, is in shambles. LaSalle's coach can be a little bit on the hot seat. Um, Fordham new coach and you know they're gonna suck we play them twice st joe's like bad you know so there's like that's kind of like why i don't think it'll be total disaster so maybe we do end up in you know in between those two but i think it's either gonna be really fun like the 20 whatever wins team or it's just gonna be impossible to watch and you know i i don't know what to tell you that's that's kind of how i see it shaking out i I do think there's something to be said for oh so going back to those things like that it's not you know none of like they they got kids from like you know California 
like Virginia, like these are not like UMass dudes. Like it's so silly when they say that. Um, yeah, it's kind of it. Um, for Bennett Carroll, for all the fine folks at Five College Movers, for all of our friends on UMass Twitter, my name is Curry Hicks Sage, and this has been another episode of the UMass Basketball Podcast as the great one-time co-host, brief tenure, briefly tenured Andrew Kalagi, a.k.a. A. Kalagi. For long time listeners would say we love you we out the next morning See, it's time to pay dues deliver the news like you mass we refuse to lose rhymes and booze the life we choose Fight good evening mailbag time maybe it'll be the whole episode i don't know um it was very impromptu uh i've had a long bunch of days and i'm moving and you don't need to get in, i don't need to get too deep into that but i'm fading and i just had that sort of <sighs> fatigued desire to uh take some questions get the get the reps in you know it's uh it definitely we're not we're definitely not team no days off here we're a team like 26 days off and then kind of get your reps in for the month so i'm trying to do a second episode to uh kind of cap the month the first episode we did was the mark bertrand episode like very beginning of the month and it's now april 28th as i'm recording this so Mailbag, like everything else in this fine program, brought to you by the world-class folks at Pine, excuse me, at Five College Movers. That's why I need my reps. World-class, stress-free moving in the Pioneer Valley and beyond. Tell Pat and the gang we sent you, and uh, you'd be crazy. I mean, you'd be absolutely out of your mind to go anywhere with anyone other than Five College. Although, in fairness, I'm moving five blocks, so I didn't call Five College. But that's because I don't want to make them drive three hours to go five blocks but you know they would have done it that's how good they are okay so um by the way movers movers are expensive probably not five college per se but you want to do it well though anyway um let's go to the questions here and what do we got Mm, reindeer umass reindeer we'll talk about a fixture on the umass twitter sphere of right now i mean he is just electric Ubiquitous. If there is any hope for the team this coming year, which player needs to step up? Oof, good question. The interesting thing and about this team, as I've said elsewhere, is excuse me, is that there's at this point, especially Ronnie and Trey now gone, there is effectively almost no meaningful difference between guys one through eight, seven at least. I'm so think about that, right? Like Noah Fernandez, kind of like a twelve point a game guard scorer. TJ Weeks, when he's when he was good, and even this year it was like ten point a game. You know, so he was good for like twelve. So I mean, actually, no, his first year he was like fifteen. So you take career wise, he's probably about twelve and a half, twelve. Um, the kid Curtis Kelly from Albany, fourteen points a game last year. And, you know, take that down by 3-4 because of the drop in, you know, the uptick in quality conference. So he's right in that range. Um, Rich Kelly, the kid from Quinnipiac, I mean, he averaged 11 and change at BC, but he averaged like 17, I think, his final year at Quinnipiac. So consider him in that 13-14 camp by sort of A-10 standards. And I'm splitting the difference between whatever league Quinnipiac's in and... um, 
you know, and, and the ACC, right? The A-10 kind of falls in between. Um, let's see. So that that's – you could certainly make a case that Cairo McCrory and, and Preston, who both, you know, career probably averaged five or six points, but have both had – uh, you know, 15-point games and could easily make that jump with, with the, you know, requisite touches. Um, you know, you could... I, I don't think you could make this case for DeAndre Dominguez yet, but, like, he had a game like that against Richmond the one time he actually got some time. It's not out of the... You know, it's not preposterous to think he could be a 8-12 to 12 point a game scorer. Um, Javon Garcia was, like, 10.5-11 last year, if I had to guess. So he's in that realm. Uh, I mean, it's it's Debaji, you know, not in that realm scoring wise, but like certainly can have those games, like you know. And I, I still, I know it's maybe it's it's the oldest tune I I sing, but I still think Debaji Walker, if used effectively and and fully healthy, so two big ifs, uh, is is like a real talent. And there's been those moments where he does it. I just think you have to give him extended minutes. You have to get him confident. You have to run offense through him. So it's probably not going to happen. But he's definitely as talented as you know most of these guys. Uh, who am I missing? So Noah, JG, TJ. Yeah, and then the kid Stedman coming from Montana was like 13 a game at um, San Jose and 10 at Montana or whatever. So again, like very much a guy in a fifth year who could do that. It's so this is a roundabout, extraordinarily roundabout way of getting back to the original question, which was, what was the original question at this point? I'm almost forgetting. Um, You know, that was essentially like who needs to step up. And I I think the, the issue will be, is there an identity around this team such that there is a known entity who can take over a game when you need it. Now, I, you know, I'd love one of our statistically inclined fans to look and see if, excuse me, if, if in fact, um, you know, there's like metrics that, that show that there, that, you know, a team in the A-10 needs a quote unquote takeover guy. Like you have teams like St. Louis and uh, even to some extent, Bonaventure, although I would say Lawton is that guy, but Richmond, you know, some some of the better A10 teams in very recent years are pretty balanced. So I'm not saying we would be one of them. I'm just saying the the unusual thing about this roster is it's basically like everybody's kind of in that same talent pool. There's certainly players who are likely to be better than others. I think Noah will be a real leader in this group. Um, but I, I don't, you know, I guess if I had to say anyone, I, I think the kid... Kelly, the BC transfer, would be the guy because he's shown a propensity at times to go for 25 or 30, including in the uh, ACC, and is just kind of got that, like, you know, he, he'll have, a, there'll be one game next year where he'll just hit, like, eight threes, and, you know, it'll be like Jimmer Fredette shit, and we'll beat somebody way too good. And then, you know, the next game, everybody in the team will combine to go, like, nine for 47 from three, and we'll lose to Fordham by 16. You know? So, like, I'm not saying that. But I think he, he's a guy to look to in terms of, and I, I mean Garcia could be that guy if he was like let free. I really think like when he was in the open court this year, even though he missed a bunch of layups, he was electric. You know when, when Matt would just let him get out and go, and you know that St. Joe's game and, and you know the Northeastern game to start the year. I mean when you know he he could be he could struggle at times, but 
you know, there's a star power there if he was played in a in the right setting. And I hope next year it will be that because because they're so small, I think we might see Matt just run and not run 22 seconds of offense all the time. So that would be fun. Like, it, you know, not that he would necessarily want to do that. He just might be forced to do that. Um, Eric Frank. He says, I have been... Uh, oh, never mind, never mind. That was a, some other tweet I had. I'm sorry. So, grown-up UMass fan says, so, who's actually staying on this team? I love a Fernandez and Garcia backcourt. Mix and match from there. Um, well, let's review who's left. Pierre is gone to Rice, but that's not a surprise. He graduated. Gasparini is done with basketball. He's also 72 years old, so it's good to know that he's sort of ready to hang up the hang up the spikes or high tops. Um, and so that's two. And then Ronnie DeGray just announced he's gone, and Trey is gone. So right now everyone else is there. The... The rumored potential other departures, and no confirmation of any of this, is the logical one would be Colton. He's not rumored actually to be leaving, but it's just I think he graduates really soon. And he's, if you figure that Garcia, both Kellys, and Noah are there, that's kind of four people effectively who can play the point. Um, or no, did I say both Kellys? No, I guess one Kelly. So Rich Kelly, but three double-figure scorers at the point. So, you know, you got to figure Colton. Like, I, if I were him, I mean, I, I think he's a great kid. And I'm just saying, like, I don't see how where he's getting minutes. So, like, I certainly would be like, that's a smart move for you. Um, you know, I think there's been talk of, like, DeAndre Dominguez or, or Cairo just because, you know, I think – I don't really know why people say that, actually um, – well, both are Bergeron kids, right? So any any Bergeron kids, there's always questions like of, well, he's gone, so would they go? And then Garcia, there's some talk of him going. But let's just say nobody's gone, because, like, I, I really don't know. But, you know, uh, as far as, like, the only people I think are surely back are Noah and Debaji, because they've already transferred. Um, although I guess that anybody can transfer now, so you never know. I mean, really, like, you know, TJ, um, I think is pretty solid, the UMass... And then all the new transfers, you know, so there's been four. But anyway, um, who's staying on the team? Probably, yeah, you, you probably do mix and match from there, but I don't know because I'll tell you what, both Kellys, like, that. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie, like, it sounds crazy, but if all four of those guys are here and TJ Weeks is back and Kyra McCrory is back, like, and Preston Santos returns, this is by far far the the deepest backcourt we've had in a long time. I mean, in part because there's essentially no frontcourt. It's by far the thinnest frontcourt in a long time. But even just quality of players, Garcia, you you have five double-figure scoring guards. (laughs) Like, Like, I know we're all, like, dunking on McCall, and rightly so, and I'm not saying this team is going to be better than the last, but you have significantly improved at guard, right? Like, if I told you on paper, okay, I'll give you 37, 36% volume shooting Carl Pierre, bless his heart, for a guy who shot, like, I think almost 50% at BC, a guy who led Albany in scoring, 
is like six five and strong, which we didn't have last year. And you would a hundred percent take that. And then knowing that two double figure scoring point guards who were really good last year are also back, plus TJ Weeks, who scored double figures, I think even this past season and last year, obviously. And he'll be fully healthy. You got to figure, like that is five guards who who are double figure scoring guards, and then Kyra McCurry, who at times like defensively was your best player last year and had you know, some really impressive nights. Like that's really good guard depth. Now you you liken it to a um, Richmond with like that core who actually themselves haven't really ever got their shit together, but you know it's all four of them are very good none of them are like A-10 first team players at this point you know a couple could become second or third but you know and so then the dynamic becomes like can you run out four third team and honorable mention caliber guards and like essentially zero bigs and win in a decent A-10 Probably not, especially given the coaching. But, um, you know, <laughs> stranger things have happened. And, yeah, mix and match from there. Start with those two. Um, so, Tim Robertson, hyper-real Tim. Is he referring to just, like, hyper-real, like, you're, you're cool, like, you're, like you're, you're super real and authentic? Or are you referring to hyper-real? Oh, wait. Am I reading a lot into this? So hyper reality, I learned in some hoity-toity like uh, histo- history of ideas class or modern social theory or some bullshit. Cool class actually. Um, intellectual history is what it's called. It's like the history of ideas. Very pretentious field, but very interesting. Um, it also made could make me sound a little smarter than I was, you know. So a little trickery, just for you young guys. Um, if so, this guy's name is so hyper reality. I think was like a a interesting like literary trend or uh, um, so like I think it's maybe a philosoph- philosophical thing. Yeah, it's philosophy. So hyper reality is like where you don't know the difference between the real world and um like the the depicted world in film and TV, especially such that you'd have examples. I remember hearing this in a lecture, and I was like, this is blowing my mind. It was like one of the wildest ideas I'd heard when I was, you know, 19 or whatever. And it was basically, of course, I did probably like eight pages of the 100 pages of reading that week, but the lectures, this guy was fucking amazing. Oh, my God. Most brilliant man I've ever known. So, anyway, so, hyper-reality is basically, um, I sound like a, like a, like a college stoner, but hyper reality is like a, where you mix up the two. So that the examples would be like doctors acting like they going back to their own hospitals and acting like what they saw on ER, like uh, talking to their like right. There's it's like the way we think of professions and concepts as informed by what we've seen in mass media, but that doesn't actually reflect like people's real life whatever and so like it's like a weird gelling anyway the guy's handle is hyper real tim and i'm wondering does he mean hyper real like reality reality anyway maybe i'm overthinking it um 
does say he's a lawyer, so you know maybe maybe he studied some of these like weird literary concepts. So he says um, his question is: the starting five doesn't matter, crowd notwithstanding. <laughs> starting five today. Uh, that's a great question. You should follow Hyper Real Tim. Like he's one of these like underrated gems on UMass Twitter that like you know well oh, he only has 123 tweets. Wow, he's good though. Um, so anyway, he says. The starting five, yeah, okay. So the starting five doesn't matter, crowd notwithstanding. Starting five today—that's a really well phrased question. Like I just—I get exactly what he's doing there. He's riffing, but it's a good question. That's like how you do it. Um, I would say JG and Noah. You can't—you can't not start them if they're both back. Although I, I just given everything's happened, I just refuse to believe both will be back, and that would be really shitty. But it wouldn't be tragic given that they have two really good like senior guards coming in. Um, so I would say JG and Noah, if, if they're back, and then the third would, like, Curtis Kelly from, is, like, bigger and stronger, so he he's a more logical third um, starter. But I just think the way Rich Kelly can shoot it, like, you just want to come out of the gate and give yourself a chance of taking that 9-0 lead, you know, before the first timeout, you know, and he and a guy just gets hot. Like, I just think that that's an, a fun thing to have on a roster. And that may be TJ again, as it was his freshman year, but I, I just tend to think, like, it's going to be somebody new because it's always, it's always like that. Like, you don't, you don't, you know, because, like, freshman year, they don't guard someone. Now, they'll guard this kid, but it's like the A-10 is not going to know his game, you know? I don't know. So I would say him, even though he's six feet, and so if you go against bigger teams, it's going to be really tough. And then your your third your your then you have Stedman, um, the kid from Montana will probably start at the five just because there's no size. Ronnie slotted in so nicely. It's it's like it's it's gonna sound insane and like I don't mean it, but I just I'm gonna throw it out there as like a weird thought experiment. Given the way Matt wants to play, which didn't appear to be like exclusively through Trey Mitchell. If you think about like how Malik Hines was used in McCall's first year, I think that's a little bit of a vision of like how McCall would would kind of want to play. He'd probably want like another big, but like that's how he'd use a big man. I think as kind of like a nine point ten rebound like tip ins guy, you know, like a couple touches, but not run the offense through him, move well without the ball, et cetera. But if you think about so if you think about Trey in that context, right, and like Matt, Matt always being like a little inherently uncomfortable with the way he used him because I just don't think he wanted to run his offense completely through him. Then it, you take you take him out of there and you make Matt comfortable and you get him like a, a very serviceable, by all accounts, addition in Stedman, who's a fifth-year senior, double-figures guy at some decent programs. And then you throw in Ronnie. Like, that's like a lineup to Matt's like real ideal tailoring. Like, I just think... And so, in a certain sense, like once you added Stedman, not that it was ever going to replace Trey, but given the way Matt coached, you're like, okay, well, all right, like I could, I could live with that, you know. And you added these other guards, and you're like, okay, like I could live with that. But then when Ronnie left, it left such a void because now you have like a bunch of point guards, a bunch of bigger two guards, right? But none of none of whom are like true, you know, three three man, three men, and certainly none of. And then you have some wings who are like three men, but not you have no power forwards on the roster. Essentially, I know they got the kid Butt Trick from Penn State, 
I don't know much about his game. He is like six eight. So by virtue of of what you've done, if you go small with Kelly, you can't then have Cairo or um, you know uh, Preston at the four. I just I just think that's too small a lineup. If you go with um, the other Kelly from Albany at the three at the at, at the three, and he's a he's a big three. I mean, not a big three. He's like a big two, but he's he's like so. Basically, you have the two point guards, um, and then you go with Kelly from Albany. Now you can now you can mix and match, and you can play Preston or some or or Cairo at the four. But um, if not, I think you probably end up having to start the kid Buttrick for no reason other than the fact that you just don't have Ronnie anymore. Like Ronnie slotted in and was going to play thirty thirty two minutes a night and be great. Like it, it was like I, I'm he's a good kid. He can do whatever he wants. The mother's the nicest person in the world on Twitter. Um, but like I just wouldn't have laughed about him. Like what are you going to go play at Iowa State for nineteen minutes a game? Like I don't know if that's what you want to do. You know. Um, but I would, or, or just have a great year in the A10 and then do it next year. Like that's to me. But whatever, I, I really will wish him well and I want him to do well. But so yeah, so I think you have to start Buttrick if you go with with Rich Kelly. If you don't go with Rich Kelly and you go with Curtis Kelly, um, you you can you can play Sedman at the five and then you can play like you know uh, DeAndre, DeBaji, any of those guys at the at the four. And now that I think about it. Debaji and I'm, I know I'm just I, whatever. He was such a good defender this year, and he has that length that I think you might actually. And he, but he can still step out and shoot it. You need another rebounder. I think you actually might have to start him at the four, regardless. Well, it's going to be a battle between him and Buttrick at the four, and I think Debaji can win that that job. Like I have seen, he, there's always a guy senior year who's been around the program for a while who steps up. Freddie Riley had a great you know senior year, really figured his shit out. Sean Carter figured his shit out senior year. Um, you know, there's been so many guys, uh, you know, Tony Gaffney, like there's, there's always dudes who kind of come out of nowhere. And I think Debaji has shown those signs. And if he's fully healthy and the, his defense was like the, one of the most dramatic improvements I've ever seen. Like at UMass this year, like his offense sucked. Don't get me wrong. But if you can put it together, I think he could be your guy at the four. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a chance you play like, you know, Preston at the three, and you try to go a little bigger, I guess. Um, yeah, be, I mean, so if I gun to my head, I'm saying the funnest lineup, I think, for me right now is, like, Fernandez, um, Stedman. So Fernandez and, and JG in the backcourt, then Rich Kelly, and then you got to go Stedman and Debaji. Um, so... But they're literally like you could essentially pick any five names out of a hat, and it would be just as just as good. There's very little distinct. It's really interesting to see like guys competing for jobs. Um, let's see, let's see. What are the? Oh, somebody else asked the exact same question. Ben Blums, shout out to Ben Blums. Um, hang on. Let's see here. What this is from Alcides underscore Coop, great account. A L C I D E S underscore C O O P. If I pronounce that wrong, let me know. What four players are going to open people's eyes this season, and why is one of them Preston Santos? Well, the answer to Preston in reverse order. Preston, I think, is just because people have kind of forgotten about him because he didn't play last year. 
or this past season. But he was terrific his freshman season, so he's not really going to like open my eyes because I think we already know what he can be. But yeah, I mean, I think it'll be it'll be by just by virtue of his return, people will be excited. The other three, I mean, I, I said Debaji. The funny thing is, like, all these guys are new, and so like they could they're all going to open our eyes because we're not going to know who the fuck we're looking at. I don't know if, like, it'll be Cairo or DeAndre. Um, I just... Because, like, they kind of opened some eyes this year. It might be DeAndre, though, if he's... So much of this one, this question, hinges on how McCall decides to mix and match lineups. And I suspect, whether he says it or not, a lot of that's going to be informed, to some extent, just by kind of picking favorites, right? Like, he's not going to care as much about keeping guys happy because... He's out unless they have a great year. And he knows that, so there's almost, like, nothing to lose. Like, if he loses a guy in the locker room, let's say, midway through the year, what's the point in keeping that kid around, right? Like, it doesn't matter. If he's a toxic influence in the locker room, and I think this happens. There's always a kid or two or three or four in year two who, you know, five, whatever, uh, who are, like, kind of toxic, but you, you can't just, like, boot them because you need to save your own face. Like, you can't have the season end and be like, yeah, the team went 11-20, and 20 and uh, I'm saying in a non-contract like contract year or non-I'm-about-to-get-fired year. But, you know, like, oh, yeah, they're 11-20, and, 20 and uh, like, four kids quit. Like, that looks really bad on the coach. Like, if Tori Verdi didn't make that run with the women's team in the A-10 tournament, like, it would have looked really bad if, if all those kids walked. So, but this year it doesn't matter. Because, like, he could just boot them all. So I I know all that, you know, to go back to the, to the original question um, about who could open eyes and kind of note, like, it's really dependent on who wants to be there, you know? And I think, I, I suspect Curtis Kelly will, will have his shit together at least in year one because he, you know, he wants to impress. Uh, I think he, he was really good at Albany, but... They obviously went in different directions after Dwayne Killings from UMass took over there. And so you, know, you have to think he's going to want to impress. You, you wonder, is it going to be a Pipkin situation and he's not as good the following season? Um, but, you know, same regarding, uh, I, think, I think all these transfers, like to one extent or the other, one will impress her open eyes. Uh, but I'll still say Debaji, Preston, I'm going to say Trent Buttrick, the Penn State kid, just because he he didn't have... He's the most underwhelming statistically of the transfers. Granted, he's from the best... Well, no, you could say BC is as good as Penn State, but he's, you know, like, basically, he's from one of the higher... He's a high major uh, transfer. He's, like, 6'8", and I think can shoot it a little. So he obviously wasn't good at Penn State, but there's no four men on this team other than kind of debaji so I think and now that Ronnie's left like this Butcher kid's just going to play a lot and then it's a question of like is he good enough and hopefully he is so I'll put him on there um Riff Raff Street Pat PVL7 my guy is the program in a better position today than it was the day Derek Kellogg got fired so before Kelsey theoretically before transfers etc without second guessing any interim decisions is the program in better shape worse shape or exactly the same as it was that day okay so by the way an aside I guess I had unfollowed Derek Kellogg I didn't realize I had done that but I refought you know I do that sometimes accidentally so 
maybe I just clicked something, but I refollowed him today and he followed me back on Twitter. Flattering. Thank you, Derek, if you're listening. Um, and I, somebody, I was telling some people in a group chat and they were like, you should get him on the pod. And I was like, yeah, maybe I should. So I hit up, you know, someone who's like sort of vaguely connected to that, to Derek scene. I was like, you think Derek would go on? He's like, probably not, but like maybe. I don't know if I want to play this earnest and like send Derek an email and be like, hey, you know, like, would you like to talk about that era, whatever. Or if I want to just play it like kind of as a bit and an ironic thing on Twitter and, and kind of like make it a little meme and sort of make him answer. I think that's, I used to like love doing that. I'm, I'm probably maybe, I don't know if you'd call it maturing or becoming elitist, one or the other. I'm like getting a little sick of some of those bits. And I say that as just from a pure humor standpoint, I don't think I'm as funny uh, in some of those bits as I maybe once thought I was or was. I don't know. Occasionally they, they hit, you know, dunking on VCU Tory, you know, but like I am mindful of Internet like gang up culture and how if not if not everybody's in on the joke or like comes with the same sensibility, it just it doesn't play, you know, so I don't know. Maybe I'll hit him up earnestly. Um, I don't think he would say anything terribly interesting until he's out of the out of coaching. I think he may, whether like intentionally or kind of thinly veiled, take shots at Bamford, um, and kind of allude to like the challenges of the job. Because, but you know, one thing I'll give Kellogg credit for is that he is unusually chill with respect to kind of like the savagery of his industry you know so many guys like whatever they do is so calculated and kind of cunning and all in service of the next job and that gets literally down to like you know a podcast interview like just the way they're they're everything's in service of positioning themselves and you know um Kellogg isn't you know, by the, from what I've noticed, by the standards of the profession, he kind of knows, like, he, he's a guy who, like, really goes into everything, I feel like, eyes open, and just kind of like, this is how it is, like, this is how we have to do things if we're going to be successful based on, like, where we are and who I am as a person, and I, I respect that about him, so you, you probably could get some interesting things out of him, but then he'll, like, if you notice him, just, like, watching him over all those years, he'll kind of also, like, he doesn't really go deep, you know, so, like, it's just not his style. Like he's not, he's not a super like reflective, um, you know, or, or, or just like, not that Mark Schmidt at Bonaventure is reflective, but he's just very like comfortable in his own skin and can just riff and like, just like you know, and talk and like think. I, I don't like Kellogg. I just don't think is like he's down to like he's a great guy to just like have at the bar and like tip him back with you. But at the end of the night, when it's like. 1130 uh, at night you know or, or later and you're guys you're sitting around in the hotel room and like you're with all your boys and they're telling stories he's like a dude you want there great guest but I don't think Derek Kellogg is like telling a great tale you know what I mean like he's weighing he's jumping in he's like oh yeah I remember that time and it's like everybody wants him there it's like kind of a classic assistant if you think about it right like he's a guy you want around good good vibes more or less but do you, you know, he'll have a couple of good stories and they'll hit pretty well. And he's a good dude, like, in his, at his core. But in terms of just, like, 
you know, I don't, I don't really know how I got on that topic at all. Oh, for my show, like, would he, would he let loose? I think I could like get him comfortable enough where I get some interesting things out of him, but I don't know. But anyway, to Pat's question, of course it's better. It was better off the the, the last day of Kellogg's tenure. Of course, like I, I would not deny that for one second. Like, because first of all. And I even said it at the time. I'd love to go back and find my tweets because I, I think at a certain, you know, obviously I had some angry ones, but I was like, I was just like, it's time to move on given like what we can be. And, and to be clear, like, but that doesn't mean there's not some measure of risk. And there's always like a few Kellogg backers, I won't say names, who, you know, take some measure of delight, I think, or, or just like schadenfreude where, you know, it's like, told you so, you know, and... You know, that's their prerogative. They can take say whatever they want. Excuse me, I'm taking some water here. Ah, excuse me. And so, you know, there's always going to be that to a degree. Taking some chips here. And, uh, you know, I totally get it. Um, but I still think you take the chance. You, you look at things in that moment and you say, like, could we do more? Could we, you know, and you, you, it's, yes, to some extent it's a risk-cost-benefit analysis, but I don't believe in the notion that if a guy comes in and is bad for four years, that that, and after Kellogg was bad for three, that that sets you back seven, right? Like, I think each new coach gets a cycle, and I don't think UMass has gotten so much worse in the national landscape since when Kellogg was here, such that they're set back all those years. I think if you get the right guy after McCall, he too can be in a similar spot to where Kellogg was. Like I don't think the, the three years removed from one tournament in 16 years or whatever is all that different from seven years removed from that. You know, I, so, um, but that said, I mean, that team had... a unbelievable group coming back. Some were definitely going to leave regardless. I think Seth Berger was gone. Um, I heard... I think I heard Jerome might even be gone. So, but like, let's say you got some in the mix. Um, yeah, it was a loaded roster. Luan Pickens ended up at Providence. I think he played in the tournament. Well, he would have played in the tournament last year, but they ended the season. Um, um, was great here under McCall. I had an unbelievable year. In 2018, uh, Dijon Giroux made it all the way to the Final Four this year and was like an incredible player on, uh, you know, not to mention his teammate Bryson Gresham who came with him, who I think was the same player here as he was at Houston for what it's worth. Turn Flowers tearing it up at LIU, uh, unbelievable shooter. So, you know, of course that team, you know, returning a core of that team, everybody back, Dante Clark back, like they, were, I mean, they were loaded. I think was Dante Clark back? No, maybe. Mm. Yeah, I think he was. So, you know, they, ha- you know, and everybody thought that team had it in it to make the tournament. Now, I still thought they were probably two years away, but that next season was probably going to be an NIT. So, yeah, of course you take that, all things considered. But this is not how the world works, you know, I mean, you make the decision at the time, and if we get somebody worse than McCall, I'm sure we'd be saying the same thing in four years, you know, whatever, so definitely in better shape back then, um, although one thing I'll say, like, programmatically, I think that the program was just, like, not, 
I mean, I think there was a lot of issues. Just I think there was like not a whole lot of institutional control. I don't know. I don't know that that matters. It might be overrated, but like, I don't think Derek Kellogg like had an amazing culture. I think it was fine. I think when they were really good, it was good for a couple of years. But by the time he was leaving, I don't think it was like you know. I think you know the kid. I don't think the kids were like bought in. Not that they are under McCall, but like you know, and that was gonna be the thing with Kellogg always. I think like. McCall is not wrong when he says, like, you know, I want kids who want to be at UMass, the Brian Matthews stuff notwithstanding. But he's not wrong in ha- in understanding that hunch. Um, and he probably phrased it wrong, and some of that's just, like, marketing speak. But I'd probably phrase it if we're being candid as, like, kids, really just, like, kids who appreciate <laughs> the collegiate experience, you know, for what it's worth. Like, I think what he's really saying is not so much about being at UMass, because kids coming from Colorado or whatever, like, they're not, like, here to be, like, at the program Marcus can be played at, you know? I mean, maybe TJ Weeks, but but they are... It is basically, you want kids who are just, like, gonna buy into any program, right? Like, they, he just wants, like... <laughs> not that Derek had bad kids. He just had kids who kind of were, like, really good at basketball, and, like, a lot of times didn't totally give a fuck. <laughs> about, like, any of the other shit. Um, definitely, like, not entirely the case, but, you know, in talking about getting to know Freddie, it's pretty funny to talk to him about some of the stuff. So, anyway, Gaber205 says, who's coming in now that RDG is going out? We're a little thin up front, no? Are there more transfers coming? And who? Is it too late for UMass, given gestures at everything, to land quality players if we have more players leave? Clearly not, because in some ways, like, in a national scene, we all think it's so bad, you know, like, everything's so bad at UMass right now. But, like, virtually every mid-major program that's not great is losing their shit right now because of the transfer rules, and it's saving the reputations to some degree of guys like McCall who've lost a ton of players over the years because now there's schools that are losing way more than us. So we are a little thin up front. Um, Why not... And can we get someone to fill it? Yeah, because there's so many transfers. And, like, the transfer market is so crazy. And guys just want to stick on a roster. Like, they're not... I mean, I you talk about guys who don't want to be at UMass in particular. Like, talk about, you know, like a kid like Mike Stedman, who's at, you know, JUCO in, in California. Then, you know, another then San Jose State. Then Montana. Now UMass, like, <laughs> you think Michael Seven goes, oh, fuck, what? you didn't even know, like, <laughs> you didn't give a fuck what, what UMass is, you know, it's just funny to hear from McCall, like, I'm sure he's a fine kid, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> um, it's just preposterous, so, uh, but yeah, you can get a lot of kids, I think, to answer Gabe's question, I just don't know if they care where they're going to be, um, so, it's not too late, no. Um, Mass Asparagus, UMass Asparagus, as in asparagus. Says some rumors that Ricky Harris will be the newest AC assistant coach. Other than that, others that it'll be an internal promotion since McCall's likely in his last year as head coach. And if you would want such a risky job, if no one's hired before the pod, what do you want in a new assistant coach? If there's a hire, what do you think? So there's a lot here. I think I never heard the Ricky Harris thing was serious. I think like. I, among others on Twitter, was when Ricky visited campus, were like, hire him, make him a coach, like, blah, blah. And I don't think there was any sense he was like, I think, 
that he was even on campus to interview for something. Because if he was, he'd be more inconspicuous about it. He wouldn't be, like, boasting on Twitter. Um, although, I don't know. You never know these days. Like, with... Um, it's not, I don't know. You know, did McCall tell him not say that? Like, who knows? Um, but so I never got the sense that that was, like, actually a thing. And very rarely would a guy go straight to assistant um, from a European procreate. He'd probably do, like, a what Chris Lowe is doing at St. Louis as, like, a grad assistant or operations position and those positions take a while I mean granted Ricky is a legend and I think he's like would be a perfect compliment to Matt Staff because he's young enough um that he can connect with kids but old enough that he can connect with them like not as like a recent grad you know um and I think he just needs like some stability and kind of just like optimism that around him who loves the school and like Ricky is that guy but um you know I do think like Ricky's almost, like, too nice, I wonder, like, yeah, Ricky connects really well with people, like, he, he would make, build good relationships with guys, um, but, so would Tyrone Weeks, you know, who was an assistant at Rhode Island, and I think St. Bonnie as well, um, and has been out of the game for a while, but, you know, like, program legend, like, super steady, just like a guy you, like, you know, takes no shit, and I think he could be a little bit of an enforcer for McCall, I mean, he'd be great, but, but, you know, him being TJ's dad, you know, does that complicate the dynamic? I don't know. He also hasn't coached for a while, and Matt's so kind of by the book in terms of his hires that I feel like he'd be like, well, he hasn't been in the game for a bit, and, you know. So uh, on that topic, I fully expect it will be um, current director of basketball operations, Brian Grossman, who has who's a 2014 Bridgewater State grad. I think he's from Duxbury. Friends of... Uh, long like he's been connected to McCall for a while. I think he did a little stint at Arizona State, maybe, and there's some Florida connection. I forget what it is, but he's basically been with Matt I think since Matt got here and is you know among insiders. Uh, you know, by all accounts, very much like you know a fourth assistant already, and kind of Matt's like chief of staff and like really like most trusted aide. And so I have no reason to believe it would be anyone else uh, especially given the dynamic you put forth and some would say you know what do you look for an assistant you want like a guy with great recruiting well of course yes um, Brian probably not that because he's been here but at this point what does it matter like he he's not recruiting I mean at this point he's just playing the transfer market and maybe trying to get one freshman you know so uh, weird year if they win and somehow are here next year um, then well, maybe it shows that he was good, you know. Um, so what do I look for for assistance in general? And it should be noted, I think, McCall's hiring for a wide variety of reasons. His hiring of staff has probably been, will be the thing that ultimately derails him here um, and his biggest weakness in coaching. But to answer the question in terms of, or not in coaching, but in program management, what do I want in a new, in a new assistant? Well, Oh, so if you mean here in general, like right now, I would want. I think continuity is fine. I think Grossman is perfectly good, um, good guy, and uh, but you know, like all thing, you know, right this second, I'd probably you're in such a dire you're in such dire straits with respect to the program that all you're trying to do right now is salvage the best roster you can to um, save your job, and so. What I would do is I would just hire, like, another 
sort of Bergeron figure who can bring like a top 50 kid right away who's really good and people will be like well that, we just did that and didn't work it's like well it kind of did work like we were markedly better than the first two seasons and you know if the guy is like pretty good and you know who he's coming with uh like you'd have to just get the best player available I mean it's like who cares you know that being said, um, I think McCall hiring a guy he trusts is probably it's like if you're gonna if you know if you're gonna get canned or you might get canned, you might as well do it with your, you know people you enjoy being around every day, right? Like it, you may not get this chance again, you may not ever be a head coach again. So like, why take chances? In fact, if he's not close with Lucius and Tyson, the other two assistants, fuck it, like hire whoever you want. Like go go bring your high school coach from Florida if you want if you think he's a guy who could sit on your bench, you know. Um, you know, in McCall's first season at uh, Chattanooga, when they were twenty nine and five, won the league. He had Reggie Witherspoon, a longtime assistant, a longtime Division one head coach in upstate New York, who had basically one year out of the head coaching ranks. I think he was at Buffalo, maybe, and then he went to Canisius or Niagara, one of those. And he came and coached. I don't know how McCall was connected to him, but. He was on McCall's sideline and by all means was regarded as like an absolute immense help to first year coach Matt McCall. And I think a lot of that is probably a function of Witherspoon's ability to kind of like understand interpersonal dynamics, you know, as they play out in locker rooms and all these things. Because Matt was inheriting a team of Will Wade's players, Will Wade now at LSU. And, you know, Witherspoon just kind of. I suspect, you know, help kind of navigate those waters for for him. And then when he became a head coach again, you know, things began, I think, to go downhill a little bit for Matt. And I think that, so for Matt, whatever Witherspoon did, somebody who, I don't know exact dynamics, but, you know, who functioned in that kind of role, I think Matt seems to be better when he's, um, he can focus on the basketball and not some of the interpersonal dynamics. I think his brain is best used in, like, the basketball... Um, not that he's always, like, running great plays or whatever, but I, I think, like, when he's thinking about those other dynamics and who should get minutes and what the locker room is like, whatever, he's not as good. So somebody who can help uh, take care of some of those things. They're a huge thing in, in teams in general. Um so, let me see. Ronnie's mom just sent a really nice tweet, but that's not a question. Uh, maybe there's none left. Um, mm, that's about it. Yeah, all right. Well, that's an abrupt end, but that's uh, former co-host Andrew Callagy, a.k.a. Callagy, would say, love you, we out.